Quite lacquer, we're walking into a building site, eh? It means something's happening. So we're under construction, and we'll share a little bit more about that at the end. Um, no real announcements this morning, other than to say if you want to know what's happening uh, November, December, we've got some cool stuff happening in the life of the church. Um, keep an eye on our social media or jump on our WhatsApp broadcast that happens once a week. Um, so we're going to jump straight into our preaching series. And so welcome to the first week of this lovely preaching series called Your. You know that word? Your. The Bible's full of brilliant Hebrew and Greek and uh, other words. If you want to know them, you can come chat to the, the gentleman in the front here. They'll tell you some of those. But we've got some pretty good South African words too, right, that help us understand. And your is one of them. Hila viet ni wat uns viet, right? Hey, they don't know what we know. Why do you say your? Well, as South Africans, um, you say your in elation, right? Your. When you're stoked. When things are just so kiff, hey? When there's joy. Like when the final whistle blows and you've won the World Cup back to back. But you also say yo and a little bit of fear, right? And a little bit of anxiety and a relief. And sure, that was close. Highball, that was scary. When their kicker just misses the penalty. Can you tell we just won a World Cup? Every preacher's job in the country got unbelievably easy for the next little while. But just think of our brethren in New Zealand who are just wrapping up their Sunday of lament and pain and suffering. It's been a hard preaching day for our mates in New Zealand. But wonder and awe, the two sides of this beautiful word, your, are these gifts that we get when we lift up our eyes to see God and who he is, to look at him and fixate on him for what he's doing and the kind of God that he is. And I want to kind of say a blanket statement as we go through the next four weeks of preaching this, is that a lot of wonderful things happen when we stop looking at ourselves and when we fix our eyes on him and we fixate on him and we obsess over his goodness and his kindness and his power. And we start looking to him. So a little uh, explanation of what's coming up in the series. We'll be looking next week at the names of God. Because your some of those names are powerful. Who he is and what he does. Um, the week after that, we're going to be hearing a beautiful testimony of how God is in every detail of our lives. Even in the toughest moments that any of us could imagine going through. And then lastly, Gav's going to be talking to us about the fear of the Lord. And how it's actually this wonderful gift that's so often misunderstood. But today... I want to start the series by going, your God is a God who loves to be with people. It's probably, I think, 23 years into my following of Jesus and getting to worship him and understand him and learn about him and receive from him and experience him. It's probably actually my favorite attribute of who God is and what he does. He chooses to make his home in us and among us because he loves to be with people, even though if you study scripture and if you look at the worst of us and the worst of the potential in mankind, it's of no real benefit to God to actually choose to love to be with us. But just like a father throwing open the doors to his home, to us as kids, he loves to be with us. And think about that for a second. Think about what a big deal it is to choose who you live with, right? So we've just spent a week uh, in the Berg, um, in my parents' timeshare, in a little two-bedroom place with eight of us sharing it, two very loud three- and four-year-olds, and my, grand my parents who are in their 70s. They've made a choice there to sleep in the loft above the kitchen uh, where all the smoke goes from the fire and all the noise goes from the children because they love to be with their people. It's a big deal, right? Home is your resting place where your energy and your resource goes, who you choose to open up your home to and make your home with is a real big deal because your reputation gets intertwined with theirs and your energy and your effort and your joy gets combined with theirs. God makes his home with people like you and me. And he fights for it 
and he puts effort into it, and he chooses it even after we, after we mess up his home over and over again. So this morning, God loves to be with people, but maybe one helpful constraint just to keep with us as we go through um, the passages of Scripture. Your God loves to be with people, but it only works when he's in the center, when he's the focal point, when he's the middle and center of attention. Because from there, he's both willing and able to speak to us really clearly, to provide for us, to protect us, to bless us. That's what God wants to do. I want to make my home with you so that I can bless you, to be a blessing. God doesn't live on the periphery. He doesn't allow other gods to be worshipped or to stand. No other idols can be included. Why is that? Well, we know God's not a narcissist, right? He's unbelievably generous and selfless and sacrificial. And we know that, I mean, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need to make a home. So why does he do that? He's not a narcissist. He's not needy. So the only reason could be that it's unbelievably good for us when God is in the center, the focal point. And we as a people, we as the people of God get to choose how we will live, as we've always been able to do from the beginning of creation. Is Jesus in the center? Is he going to speak and bless and protect and provide? Or are we going to try and make our own gods in our image? Are we going to try and build our own towers to get to him and make our own blessings? And those, that choice, those two paths, run all the way through Scripture from just after the very first pages of Scripture in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, all the way through to the very end, just before Revelation 4 starts. That middle section there, is where there's this battle between are we going to put God at the center or are we going to make our own way? And it's messy and it's painful and it's full of brokenness. This side here, minus a bunch of the index, is perfection. And this end here is perfection. But how do we navigate these choices that we have to make in every season of our lives? Sorry for making the Bible a little bit, um, treating it with a little bit of disdain there. Genesis starts with perfection because God's at the center and man is around him. God is at rest, and man is at peace. Does that make sense? God in the center, mankind around him. God is at rest, and man is at peace. That's the starting point, the good picture of Genesis 1, 2, and Buddha 3. And the Bible ends in Revelation with perfection, because God is again at the center, mankind is around him, and God is at rest, and man is forever at peace. Between the two, yo, it's amazing when the people of God listen and follow him and put him in the middle, and yo, it's scary when we don't. So we've just been studying as a church the book of Daniel. If you missed it, you can pick it up on our podcast. And the consequence, right, we see in Daniel of God's people not putting him in the center is this Taylor's oldest time, right? Babylon kind of comes, wipes them out, and they're living in this evil land. They're living in a corrupt generation, trying to hold fast to what God has for them. And so we've just come out of Daniel, but we're going to bounce around the Bible from the beginning to the end to try and see how this story is a tale as old as time. And to help us today, a little image that some of you may remember if you were here last year of this kind of rainbow threads that exist throughout Scripture. What that is, is it's a, it's a visual depiction of every time the Bible, from, Gen, from Genesis here to Revelation then, every time the Bible references itself, mentions itself, in fact, over 63,000 times the Bible does that, one of those strands is there. These golden threads, this good news that God has been consistent in His Word and His Bible towards us. And so that's going to be helpful because it's really important to know when we're reading something, where else does this thing get talked about? Where does it get mentioned the first time? Because that's really important. And where else does it qualify itself and build a little meat onto the bone? And so this morning, when we are looking at the idea that God loves to be with people, 
when, when that's our big theme for the day, the technical term for it, the fancy word, is temple theology or tabernacle theology. God loves to put his tabernacle, to tabernacle with us, to put his temple in the middle of his people. And so we're going to look this morning at some of the temples that we see throughout the Bible and what they tell us about this God that loves to be with people and how they connect with each other from the beginning all the way through to the end because this idea of temple runs from start all the way through to finish. Now there's three physical temples we're going to look at and then a few other uh, metaphorical imagery temples that we're going to look at. So we're going to start in 438 BC with the tabernacle, which I've got here. Can you see? This is the tabernacle. It's lovely to have a three-year-old and a very creative uh, wife because I've got all the resources I need without having to go buy them. Okay, so the first thing, 438 BC, nearly 500 years before Jesus, there's this transportable temporary temple that God's people built. Moses goes up the mountain and he gets long instructions of exactly how he should build it. Do you remember the story? Build the tabernacle and make sure that it's transportable. Why does it need to be transportable? Because they've just come out, as Cathan shared, out of slavery through the Red Sea and they're on their way to the promised land, but they're not there yet. God was taking his people from slavery, from sin, from being trapped to a promised land so he could be at the center to protect and provide, speak to them, and to bless them. He wanted to know that even though they weren't there yet, on the journey that seemed so long and painful, on that exodus, he was still with them. He was still in the middle of them. And so as they moved, he wanted to move with them and be at the very center of them. Then they arrive at the promised land. And just a short 500 years later, you know, because God always moves quick in our timing, right? Just a short 500 years later, we get Solomon building his dad David's temple. Yeah. Look at this. We're not in the tabernacle anymore. About 500 years later, Solomon builds this temple. And it's the most beautiful, ornate, fantastic building with all the best of God's resources. And it's actually the highest point in Jerusalem, so that every day as God's people go about their business, they're looking up and they're seeing God's at the center, God's the highest point, God is beautiful and powerful. Now, obviously, from the beginning, God's people knew his presence is not actually containable. Like, you can't shove it into a tent, and you can't put it in a temple, no matter how big or beautiful it is. But God wanted a symbol for people to know that his presence was with him. So even though he's uncontainable, even though he could fill the whole universe, in fact, hold it in the palm of his hand, he was willing to come and show them that he wanted to be in the middle of them. And so it's meant to be a symbol of heaven touching earth and God's dwelling place being amongst men, a theme that you'll see throughout the Bible. On earth, as it is in heaven, is the way it would later get said by Jesus. So finally, after this, uh, God being in this tent, moving with them, they reach the promised land, and God's dwelling place is in the promised land, at the center, blessing his people, speaking to them, providing for them, and protecting them. And what do God's people do? They just go, thank you, Lord, and they listen to him, and don't do anything wrong, right? Just like us. God blesses us and saves us and gives you what we need, and we always just do such a good job with it. Remember we said from the beginning, people have two choices. Will we keep Jesus at the center? Will we keep God at the center? Or will we try and govern ourselves? Will we try to build for ourselves our own lives, our own blessed life, our own rewards and goodness? And God's people decide again they want to govern themselves, even though they've got this glorious presence of God in the center. And so they turn their back on him. And the temple gets destroyed. 
And that's the book of Daniel we've just read, right? The temple destroyed and plundered and people getting taken into Babylon as captives. Right, we'll come back to that story a little bit later. Temple 3 is when the temple gets rebuilt after the book of Daniel. And it's not quite as magnificent as ornate as, I don't know what's in there. I hope it's not alive. Um, it's not quite ornate or beautiful or big as the original temple, but it's also not the tent. It's in between the two. Temple number three, which is actually temple number two, but let's not get stuck on that. About 400 years later. Remember we said we had those two choices? Again, we start to see how people move away from Babylon and start to rebuild the temple of God and put them back at the center. But even that doesn't last particularly well. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. The tabernacle, 500 years later, Solomon's temple. 400 years later, the second temple. And we'll come back to that a little bit. 500 years, Jesus. And then 2,000 years, us. Attempt after attempt after attempt of God going I want to be at the center of you, not because I need it, not because you're good, but because I want to speak to you and protect you and provide for you and bless you over and over again. It's not the first time God's run after people, and it's not the first time we've chosen again and again to run away from him and try and govern ourselves. But God's heart always is to be in the center to bless his people. Now, if we go back to the tabernacle, the first temple that's transportable on the Exodus. While Moses is up on that mountain getting those instructions from God, this detail of how God wants to provide a physical representation of the fact that he's in the middle of them. And then you know that's not the only thing God does, right? What else does he do? He hems around them a fire of protection, a cloud of protection, a fire of protection at night. He's around them. He's in the middle of them. And they're going, we're in the desert. Where are we going to drink from? So he miraculously provides water. And they go, well, what are we going to eat? And daily, every single day, they are seeing a miracle of food coming out of nowhere, enough to feed probably a couple of million people. God's in the middle. God's all around them. There's miracles everywhere. And while Moses is up there getting these instructions from God, what are we doing down at the bottom of the mountain? We're making a golden calf. Can we build ourselves an idol that we will worship? Maybe we can make our own good life. Maybe we can find our own protection and blessing. They fix them eyes on themselves instead of fixing their eyes on God, their creator. Good thing we aren't like that anymore. While we're talking about the tabernacle, it's the first physical building tent thing with the Ark of the Covenant and that represents God's presence among people. But it's actually not the first temple we see in Scripture. It's not the first time God has placed himself in the middle, filled it with himself, and invited us to live around him. So try and see, as we read the story of the tabernacle getting built, try and see where else in the Bible you can remember this language and these references from. So at the creation of the tabernacle, Moses is instructed to speak seven phases, seven times, over this house of God, over this creation that they're making. At the end of that, the presence of God will fill everything that has been made, and then people, the king and the priest, will be able to take their rest in the presence of God and begin to rule and reign and steward God's people and creation again, even in the desert on the way to the promised land. Where else do we see that in Scripture? It's Genesis, right? It's the creation story. God creates this beautiful order out of a dark, barren wasteland, and he speaks for seven days over creation. And at the end of it, the thing gets formed, and then he fills it with his presence, and he takes his rest and his rule, and he invites people, creates people to come and enjoy what he has made. You see, it's easy to think that temple means a building, a physical place. 
But temple simply means God at the center, filling with his power and his goodness, at rest and inviting people to come and enjoy what he has made. Heaven coming to earth, heaven touching earth from the very first pages. And when you flip over from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, God makes a place for people right at the center of his creation. He calls it Eden. And at the center of that garden in Eden, he creates this tree of life, a representation of everything that he wants to give and bless with. And he says, come and eat, come and enjoy what I've given you and steward and look after all of creation. He would walk with them in the cool of the day and speak to them, God providing, protecting, speaking, and blessing. God in the center, mankind around it. He started as he meant to carry on. God has always loved to be with people. And in a perfect creation, he doesn't need a building to do it because we become his home. Now, interestingly, when we jump to temple number two, the big, beautiful, ornate one, the highest point, the, the um, one that Solomon built, when we jump to temple number two, the inscriptions and the images on the walls of the temple are full of the Genesis 1 and 2 creation nature symbols. The menorah that sits there in the middle of the holy holies is meant to symbolize the tree of life. And there's throwbacks from the tabernacle all the way to Eden, and there's throwbacks from Solomon's temple all the way to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, because those golden threads that we saw just keep repeating over and over again. So spoiler alert, one of the biggest narratives in the Bible is God wants to make his home in you and among you. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing. But remember that choice, that irritating little choice that every single one of us had, that they had in the garden, that they had in the desert, that they had in the promised land with temple one, that they had in the promised land with temple two. It's either God in the middle or it's me in the middle. I either fix my eyes on him with everything or I fix my eyes on myself. There's no in-between ground. From day one, next to the tree of life, the forbidden tree, they want to govern themselves. They want to build their own happiness. They want to be God themselves. And a world of pain enters. And instead of the tree of life, we end up with the Tower of Babel and attempt to build a tower up to God to the heavens to go, look how impressive we are. And from Babel comes Babylon, right? And all our pain with it. When we take God out the middle, when we take our eyes off of him and onto ourselves, when we push him to the periphery, you're, there is pain. And we, I don't know why we do it. I don't know why I do it over and over again. We see the cycle just repeat. God creates. He fills with his glory. He invites us in. Come and see where heaven touches earth. Come and hear from me. Come and be protected by me. Come be provided by me. Come be blessed by me so you can bless others. And we just over and over again choose to govern ourselves. Well, I think maybe my way of doing it will work. I think maybe my way of being Lord will work. I think my tower will get me a happier life. Creates, fills of his glory, invites us in, and it gets destroyed. And then we're in exile. And then God forgives and delivers and rebuilds and fills it with his glory and invites us in again, over and over again. Which brings us to temple number three in Scripture, the one that happens just after the book of Daniel, as God uses those 70 years to have a faithful remnant that wouldn't get taken back to Jerusalem to rebuild the glorious symbol and metaphor of God's presence amongst his people. Zechariah 1, which will go up on the screen, is happening um, in this period. The angel of the Lord said 
Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem, your place, and the towns of Judah, your people? Why have you been so angry these 70 years, or who you've been so angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words. 70 years of punishment, people running away from him, and he speaks kind and comforting words. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for my people and for their place, for Jerusalem and Zion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem. How? With anger. With mercy. And my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over the whole of Jerusalem. That's really important. We'll come back to it in a second. Declares the Lord Almighty. And proclaim this further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will comfort his people and choose to be amongst them. God moves back towards the people that have rejected him. The reason is he wants to bring mercy, to bring prosperity, and to bring comfort because it's who he is. Zechariah chapter 2 says this, I looked up and in front of me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked him, where are you going? He answered me, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire Around it, declares the Lord. Does that remind you of anything? A wall of fire around his people? In the Exodus. I will be its glory within. Does that remind you of anything? The temple. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Does that remind you of anything? It's looking forward to the book of Acts. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before him, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God's coming out of the temple to go to all the world. That wall of fire reference looks back to the tabernacle that many nations is looking forward to the book of Acts, where we see multiple nations suddenly hearing the language becoming, uh, the gospel being preached in their language, and they become God's people. And then Zechariah 9, a prophetic book, 500 years before Jesus would arrive, says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king is coming to you. He's righteous and he's victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a picture of Jesus. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will not be in a tent in the desert. His rule won't even be on the mountaintop in Jerusalem, the highest point. His rule will extend from the sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And that brings us to my second favorite part of temple theology. Jesus arrives on earth. These three physical temples that we've looked at connect all the way back to the garden. They're a thread all the way through Scripture and the Old Testament to each other, but they also connect to Jesus. 
No story shouts more that God loves to be with people than Jesus being sent to us and after us and for us to win us back once and for all. The final priest, the final prophet, and the temple of God bringing his presence to fill the world. Jesus says this, I want you to know that through me, God's presence and rule are coming to rule and reign in a new way. So Zechariah says the king's coming, righteous and victorious, on a donkey. And when that king comes, he says, I want you to know that it's through me that that temple, that presence is going to go out to the whole world. He's proclaiming a new way. He wasn't a priest, he's the priest. He wasn't a prophet, he's the prophet. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, God's presence would ultimately fill the world. What an upgrade, right? Can you see it? In the garden, God's presence is over all creation. But when rebellion happens, it means it gets downgraded. The tabernacle is kind of a place where they have to go to in the middle of a desert. It's still magnificent. It's still good. And, but even Solomon's temple, this fixed place in one place on a mountain in Jerusalem where they could look up to, that's pretty good. But the, re, the rebuilt temple is, is still not quite as glorious as Jesus, even though it's stretching not just from the mountain, but over the whole of Jerusalem and reaching out to look for all the nations of the earth. But Jesus comes and says, I am the temple, I am God's presence, and his home will fill the whole world once again. People could come to Jesus for protection, for healing, for power, for love and grace. He walked humbly amongst them as the perfect temple who would give up his life and breathe out his spirit and tear that curtain so that God's home would be amongst everyone, everywhere, to anyone who would call on his name. Jesus calls himself the temple, but it's still only my second favorite part of temple theology. Do you want to know what I think is the best part? After Jesus' resurrection, he says, you will receive power and presence from on high, the Holy Spirit himself that's lived in the tabernacle, that's been in the temple, that's been in me, will come into you. And you will be my witnesses from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit does indeed come, and Peter preaches. And remember those many nations that were prophesied hundreds of years before? They hear the good news of God in their own language, and many nations become the home of God. Later on in life, that Peter would write a letter, and he'd say to us and to the church he's writing to, friends, all of you church, don't you know that you, and it should be up on the screen as well, you yourselves are God's, are being built like living stones into a temple to be the holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You think this was magnificent? You think that was amazing? You think the garden was good? You and me are the temple of God being built into this holy priesthood. Paul and Corinthians would say, friends, don't you know that you yourselves are God's home and his house, his dwelling place where his glory and provision and protection come, where his spirit dwells in your midst. Don't destroy your own temple. God will destroy the person that does. For God's temple, you are sacred. You together are that temple. God's grandest plan and our your moment for today is that we become his home, his dwelling place. Anyone who would call on the name of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ becomes the place where he lives and administers his power, where he speaks to us, where he provides to the world and protects the world and where he rules and reigns and wants to use us to bring peace and joy to earth. Our job is to choose again and again and again to make him the centerpiece, to put him in the middle 
and to fixate on him over and over again, to refuse any attempts to govern ourselves and worship ourselves and build a tower of success to ourselves and go, Jesus, you're enough. Your presence is enough. Your goodness is enough. Because when we lift our eyes off ourselves, amazing things can happen. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to say amen, and then we're not finished. You need to give me another five minutes, okay? So don't get all excited about tea. Let's pray. And I'm going to pray a sentence, and maybe just in your mind and in your heart, you can pray it silently after me. Thank you, God, that you love to be with people. Thank you that that's always been true from day one. Thank you, Father, that you love to speak to us and that you'd actually speak to people right now. Thank you that you love to provide for us and protect us and bless us. God, we repent in this moment that we so often too easily take our eyes off you and fix them on ourselves. Lord, we just repent. Thank you that you forgive us and wash us and reinvite us back to yourself. We thank you so much that you sent Jesus in grace and power, victorious and righteous, to make a way for us to be your home. And God, this morning, we want to be the temples that reflect your glory. We want to be administers of your peace on earth. Lord, would you come and rule and reign in Olive Tree Kloof, we pray. Lord, would you make us a conduit of blessing to the people of Kloof and Upper Highway and the valleys around us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, you